You pull out your best elk skin for a night around the fire. But alas, the rain puts it out. Bummer. Lucy says, Ugh, ugh, waglash. Yeah, that kind of loosely translates into, Is it time to send Bob out to harvest Skyfire? Welcome to What Is It About the Weather podcast, where we explore the many ways that weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelanek. Back, back home, you know, good, bad, good, tricky thing, you know, combination. Sometimes you like to be away. Sometimes you like to be home. There's, there's benefits in each. Now, hopefully for you guys, that means I'm working my way back towards a normal schedule. It's only a couple days late this week, (laughs) as opposed to half a week late. And hopefully the sound setup is a little more consistent. I know when I'm recording on the road and I'm holding the microphone in my hand, which is what I did for the last two episodes, I can kind of move a little bit more than I would just sitting behind the microphone, still always move a little bit. But I'm guessing that it sounds a little more consistent, although with it comes the sounds of me being around a city with, you know, approximately 20 million people. Any case, hope your weather's going well. I, you know, thankfully, it's, it's kind of weird. I'm in, at least for a couple more days, what would be late summer weather? Pleasant days, cool nights, you know, low dew points, comfortable by any measure. Certainly for humidity, last week, boy, was I reminded about that. In any case, the, the, I'm not dealing with a heat dome, as it's been called, and we've been experiencing heat domes, if you will, and it seems to be the buzzword, the weather buzzword. I'll even put a link in the show notes where somebody talks about it. But I've been watching this progression this year. So it started over very much the West Coast of the U.S. And kind of each time it it reinvigorated, if you will, it progressed a little east. And this most recent one it happened a couple of times. One while I was in, you know, upper plains of, of the U.S. And then it kind of migrated towards the east. And I kept staying slightly ahead of the worst of it. But I think eventually next week it's going to work its way here as well. Any case. I'm thankful I haven't experienced the worst of it, but heat dome is the word of the year. You know, farewell, polar vortex, anything you want to throw at it. Heat dome is the thing. And I've seen all sorts of good memes on Twitter and stuff. But um, like I said, it's dew points more often than get me than the heat. And I was in the South for a couple of days on my whirlwind tour. And I was reminded about the complexities of life in the South when you walk out the door and, you know, by the time you get to your car 10 seconds later, you've lost 10 pounds just sweating. And that part was existing <laughs> in the South while I was there. So I am I am thankful to be to a little lower dew points, a little more comfortable humidity by my taste, right? Grateful for that. But as I said, I had a great, great time out in my travels. Let's see what the final totals were. So it's gone 15 days, and, you know, it was a mix of of vacation work. I mean, some of it was, you know, true vacation. Some of it was travel, work a bit, then travel some more and, you know, work some uh, hours here and there into leisure activities, if you will. A little bit of hiking. Grateful for that. Anywhere I could. Did some high pointing, but it was, let's see, 15 days. 6,200 miles, more or less, 23 states, and 
last few days, did a little bit of high time for you, those of you who don't know what it is. This is finding the high points in state. Some of them I'd, I'd been to before, but some of these were new for me and they weren't exactly the hardest ones. The South Dakota one I did was real. Like that was a real hike, went up a fair amount of elevation and it did over like 7,200 feet vertically. But even that one, the vertical climb, I mean, I've done harder vertical climbs in upstate New York where I've, you know, summited Whiteface Mountain, which is about 30, somewhere between 35 and 4,000 vertical feet on the climb itself. But had a good time with that. And again, it was a nice, when I was doing that over the weekend, it was just, it was perfect weather for it. Highs in the, you know, 20 to 25 range Celsius in the low to mid 70s Fahrenheit. It was just good all the way around. I, I, I really can't complain. Had just great experience overall. A lot of things to see, a lot of new places for me. And so weather, I can't complain. Some hot days, yes, of course. Some humidity, yeah, of course. But it was a great trip. But like I said, I did one hike did one hike on that trip that was meaningful. And when you're, I don't know, it, just about anywhere you go these days that there's kind of a neat scenic location, you almost always pull through a small town that has helicopter rides. And living at a spot that seems to draw in helicopters that hover over the building while they're covering some sort of traffic thing here or there, I, I'm not, I'm just not a fan. I don't mind the noise of a helicopter. I don't mind that. I grew up near a, an Air Force facility, so I can deal with the sounds. I can deal with the jets and all that kind of stuff. And there was even an Air Force base near where we were in South Dakota. I, I could handle all of it. Not exactly the sound I want to hear when I'm outdoor doing things, enjoying nature, but tolerable. And same with helicopters. And I understand what weather tours. But when you get started early, you get out there early in hopes of, you know, beating the heat on a, on a given day and, and enjoying your day and the helicopters start right away and they just kept going and coming and going and coming and going and it seemed endless and coming and going. I'm like, how many people are paying for these rides and is the scenery that good that you wanted? To, maybe it is. I mean, it, scenery was that good, but do you really need to do a helicopter ride for it? Well, I guess if you don't want to hike it, maybe that's the way to do it. But as I was going up this hike, crested, certain points, probably about, I don't know, halfway to two thirds of the hike. I, I had a visual that I hadn't had over, a, you know, another valley further away. So I was in the Black Hills of South Dakota, South Dakota, Korda. That's good. My English no so good today. And I noticed a small amount of smoke and then I noticed the helicopter. So what it seemed like was going on is helicopters were coming and going and keeping a status check on a forest fire. Right. And it was really wild. This forest fire was on the top of one of these hills that I'm like, how did anybody get there? And, you know, it was just sort of wild. And, you know, I started kind of being more interested in it. And I was going to go up and be near Ranger Station. And it got me to thinking about forest fires and just the role they play. Now, in the case of this forest fire, it was, as the ranger told me, started by lightning. And it made me start thinking about, okay, how often is that the case for, you know, so often you hear ones about a car started or a camper start, you know, somebody that was not being careful started the forest fire. But the reality is the vast majority of forest fires in the U.S. every year, for example, 
I shouldn't say the vast majority, nearly half of them are started by lightning, right? Nearly half. Now, that leaves room for a lot of others. But naturally speaking, there's in excess of 20,000 fires that are started each year by lightning. And in the area I was in, and obviously, because there was nobody climbing where this thing was, it was started by lightning. So, you know, got me to thinking, really, I've done a lot of lightning stuff, and I've talked about, you know, lightning, kind of the neat science behind it, and lightning is a power source potentially, but also how lightning even could have been involved in sparking life. But but I started thinking, was lightning really the source of where man or our ancient ancestors really got started with fire? And it really appears likely that if you look at where, you know, our early record of some sort of erect human form has existed, that a lot of those areas are not in, in places where you would think, okay, what are, what's the other logical sources? Some sort of volcano, right? Something blowing molten lava, you know, either it's burning something. And those are not, you know, people aren't going to get up those. Those tend to be a little hot. But let's just say it, it you know, it, it erupted and, and threw enough something that could catch a fire. Highly more likely that, it was from forest fires, right? Now, there's some debate as to, as we examine and we find the existence of humans interacting with fire continues to creep back in time. I learned a little bit about, you know, uh, little abbreviations used in other sciences. That took a little while to get through with this episode. But our timeline keeps creeping back. And it's now believed that, you know, like I said, some sort of Homo sapien type creature was was working with fire probably close to a million years ago. And it was in a cave, right? So it wouldn't have been something where they just happened upon a fire, that that clearly they were working with it. Now, the real question would be, did it did they get it from an outside source and bring it in? Like did they get it from a, a lightning strike type of fire? Or had at that point had somebody at least figured out how to start a fire another way? doesn't matter. The reality, more or less, and is, is to believe that the likely interaction between ancient folk and fire was most likely through forest fires started by lightning. Okay. Now, there have been movies about this, Quest for Fire, a couple of them back in the 80s, again, dating myself here. Quest for Fire, where it was, you know, a bunch of grunting and kind of like with the intro. But then there was a funny one called Caveman, and it came out around the same time. But I don't think it was a spoof necessarily on Quest for Fire. But it had, I don't know, I think it was Dennis Quaid and Shelley Long and some other actors of that that time. Even Ringo Starr of the Beatles was in it. It, it, it. My time, when I saw it, when I was a tween, if you will, I found it humorous, right? I don't know if I watched it now, I would find it nearly as funny. But they kind of played with the whole idea of, you know, somebody getting hit by lightning and it catching their fur on fire kind of thing. But I found the interesting part of reading about this that they assume that our ability to have fire, control fire, and use it, not not just in, I mean, you think of the obvious thing, right? Cooking, right? So you're getting probably better nutrition that's not likely going to be something that kills you if it's if it's off a little bit or something like that but they talked about the social aspects of fire and how it 
probably helped our cognitive development and help grow the size of our brain. Yeah, I can't even begin to understand all that. And I'm not going to get in it too much here because it's interesting to think that lightning and weather had a real involvement in our development, right? And our analytical abilities, if you will. But I started really thinking more about the fire itself. And I was thinking about you know, what I've read before, it's been another bad year with forest fires. And while I was out West, we were dealing with smoke from forest fires. So I, I saw a couple examples of where weather and the fire were coming together and interacting. And there's no doubt, there's there's three things that typically trigger fire behavior, like an open fire, forest fire, or just, you know, you can call it a forest fire, but just an open land fire, if you will. And one of those, and probably the most important of them, is weather. Okay, fuel and topography are the other things. So those things come into play. Fuel just being, you know, what's available to burn. Topography, as you can imagine, could have an impact on how fire behaves as it spreads through a different region. But there are different elements of weather that have different influences on whether it's good or bad for a forest fire, generally speaking. And some of them might be more or less obvious. Might you know, I might say temperature, and you might go, well, what's that got to do with it? Well, the warmer it is outside, the more likely evaporation has been taking place. An area can get dried out, okay? But also, if it raises the ambient temperature of whatever the, the materials are around the fire, that's less work that the fire has to do to get it to where it ha- it will combust. The new material will burn, right? All those fuel sources will burn. Less energy is expended, more energy to fuel the fire. Wind, uh, you know, you can think about wind's an easy one because anybody who's ever started a fire knows you blow, you know, it's a delicate balance between you want to blow it out like blowing out a candle, but if you blow just the right amount, that's how you really get a fire going. You know, you're feeding in oxygen. You're, you are drying it out theoretically, you know, with it depends on the air, of course. But you're also moving sparks, or you're moving the ability of that fire to maybe grow more exponentially or across a different geography than it would have otherwise. Obviously, the moisture level, and that could be two things. It could be the humidity level. It could also be the rain. But all these things come into play. So weather, okay, even things like atmospheric instability, if, if there's a lot of lift already going on because the atmosphere is unstable and you've already got a lot of flow going up, the fire is just going to feed into that, right? So there's even something called the fire weather index. And, and you maybe every time you go out in the woods, for those that do, you might see here in the U.S. a little smoky bear sign, and they'll tell you the fire danger, and it's a different little color level. Now, that's a broader index, but there is truly a fire weather index that goes into that sort of thing that specifically is developed around trying to get measurements. And, and you will see this for the large fires. The National Weather Service has a team that will you know, deploy people near the fire to help in the process of forecasting what's going to happen. Because the more they can know about the weather, the more they can work to control that fire. Because when you think about trying to control a forest fire, yeah, you always see these things where they're suppressing it, but a lot of times they're laying down battle lines, right? They're trying to clear an area or come up with a way to create what they would call a fire break, some way to stop the fire in its track. Okay, and that's where you see a lot of times where the firefighters on the ground are are actually trying to do it. They're not their goal is not to be right up the front line specifically, 
you know, it's not like they've got a fire hose up there and they're trying to put out the fire. That's not the goal. They're, they're trying to limit progress. And so forecasting which way the wind might blow or where the conditions, are they going to be conducive or not conducive to the development of that fire in a, like I said, in a certain direction or, you know, overall, it's very important to their planning. So, Again, fire and weather have this whole connection, but what's particularly interesting to me is that on the flip side of that, that a big enough forest fire can actually start to modify the weather, particularly the weather in its region. But as I said, it's even broader. So when I was dealing with forest fire, it, it was you know it was kind of a little bit of a bummer. So the first couple of days we were out there, this forest fire not too far away and the wind direction had just pushed. And, and even as I was driving towards South Dakota, where I was going to be for a few days, I mean, it was, I don't know, five in the afternoon. I was heading west. And I was able to look truly dead into the sun without any impact, without even needing sunglasses, because there was so much smoke that it was dampening the effect of the sun. Now, that can have a positive thing, right? Sometimes that can actually lower the temperatures in the region. And to some extent, it did actually bring down the forecasted high temperatures or the actual high temperatures where I was because it dropped the amount of solar radiation reaching the earth. So we just wasn't happening. Weren't getting as much rays from the sun, kept the temperatures down. But on the flip side of that, you know, smoke was out. It wasn't so bad that it was making it difficult to breathe. So it can do it at a far, you can imagine how, if anything that big is, and it was, it was dumping smoke and, and behavior into the atmosphere, all right, that was impacting, and, and I've seen this before, a couple thousand miles away. And, you know, I saw all these people posting on Instagram, Twitter, and everything else, all these neat sun shots and even some interesting moon shots. Great, that's that's fine, but what about closer to the event? What happens? And yes, it's not just on that broad scale that it might influence weather, but it can actually change what you think of as really the weather that we see on a regular basis. So, it can create its own clouds and there's pyrocumulus clouds that form. And, and you've probably seen videos of this. It's not just a smoke bloom that, that forms, but an actual cloud formation that forms around these things. And if they get big enough, they are very much like thunderstorms. They can have their own lightning, which again can spark fire further away. This is where it gets tricky is when these storms get big enough to have their own weather, they take that fire oriented weather forecast and you know could toss it out the window because they may have put a brake line down fire brake line and it jumps the the brake because of what's going on and there's even wild things like you know you think about a thunderstorm so a thunderstorm can be this big thing that grows and then they can collapse right and you get this huge rush of wind out well this same thing can happen with these huge you know thunderstorm like events that happen over fires that as the heating of the day goes away, that's that's working with the fire, all of a sudden you get this collapse in temperatures that drop that down and you get this just wild winds that blow out and, and again, can distribute embers and, and other things that are afire into places where they go further than they would have otherwise and trigger an extension of that fire. So it actually, in some ways, and I know it's not actively doing this, I don't think there's a little fire demon under there or anything, but the fire is actively using weather to keep itself alive and growing. 
And you, you know, you see these videos that show, because it can, it can form kind of like these dust devil looking things that have flame that go up in them, right? But they could even form a true fire tornado. And there's, I, I think I've got a link in the show notes to one of them. I may or may not, but one of the stories I have in the show notes even shows a link to the video that shows this massive tornado-like structure that you see that's rotating like a tornado. Doesn't it's not what I would call a you know a strong tornado that you would see you know of hundred plus miles an hour. They they tend to move a little slower, but you can see the the flames up in the tornado itself. It's just wild to witness, right? So the behavior of all this heat that the fire is creating doesn't work much differently than the sun heating the earth. And if, as you get a lot of heat, hot air rises, depending on what's going on in the atmosphere around it, that can be turned into essentially a firestorm, if you will. Now, the fire itself isn't going to travel all the way up into the upper levels of the atmosphere. As I talked about, all the other components go with it. So the carbon and the ash components can, and to a lesser extent, maybe some embers could. But we were back to this lightning thing again. So here we were with lightning starting this fire, right? And lightning in the end, potentially coming from the fire. So it's this whole circle of life between, you know, what the fire is, how the fire started, weather, how the fire grows, weather, and how humans grew lightning weather. I don't know. It's just, it was kind of neat. And I hope you've enjoyed this brief spin into kind of weather being fired up, if you will. So the next time, right, the next time you're burning a marshmallow over fire log, you know, nice man-made little structure or, or any fire that's created. Maybe you happen to cross some lightning-induced fire on your camping trees. I hope not because that probably means it's too dry and you should be having a fire. But the next time you're enjoying the outside and you've cooked a little food, just remember that you cooking that food over open fire probably, most likely, came about because way long ago, somewhere way down the line, somebody that could barely go ug lug wug figured out that fire made everything taste like chicken (laughs) and that there's much more to weather than the weather itself.